For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we, we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Hello everyone, how are we all doing? Welcome to episode 101. Love saying that. Now, just checking if you have snacks to hand, because this episode is guaranteed to make you really hungry. It's all about fashion and food. When is a fashion show not a fashion show? Try when it's actually a dinner cooked by a bunch of incredible, sustainability-obsessed female chefs intent on challenging food norms, and when the clothes reference that directly. I went to one of these during London Fashion Week and I made all these new friends who I'm very excited to introduce to you now. The dinner was organised by the London-based fashion label Gung Ho and this episode was recorded the morning after their Spring 2020 fashion dinner at the Curtain in Shoreditch. And I want to thank the Curtain for hosting us. If you're looking for somewhere cool to stay or hold an event in East London, do check them out at www.thecurtain.com. And that's spelled C-U-R-T-A-I-N. So there are four guests on this week's show. Sophie Dunster is the artist, activist and designer behind Gung Ho. And instead of seasonal collections, she designs around themes So there's one a year, forget like autumn, winter, spring, summer and all that. She's just got one big issue that she's trying to start conversations around through design. And previously she's done collections on plastic pollution and the importance of insects. But this year's gung-ho theme is food for thought. Sophie uses her original prints to tell stories through her clothes and she says, that way next time when someone compliments you on what you're wearing, you'll have more to say than just thanks. We'll hear from Sarah Keo Popova, aka She's So Delicious, and you spell that S-H-I-S-O if you want to look her up. She brings her Swedish-Japanese roots to the table with her incredible plant-based bento boxes. I've got an amazing book she wrote about bento boxes, but there's a new one now. Her latest is An Opinionated Guide to Vegan London, and we'll share some links. You'll also meet Abby Aspen Glencross, who is a scientist, farmer, cook and botanical explorer. How's that for a job description? She started her career working in the lab, but she now works on the land and we'll hear all about that. She's also the co-founder of the Sustainable Food Story, which is a roving supper club. And they use all this amazing homegrown produce and stuff grown by their friends and also surplus and foods that tend to be wasted and foraged ingredients, all of that. And she does that to start conversations about the farming system. And, of course, to give you a damn good meal. And finally, Lauren Lovett is the chef and food activist behind Plant Passion and Mind Food. Lauren's amazing. She holds classes and also pop-ups and she teaches chefs and food lovers in general about reconnecting with sustainable produce. But she also wants us to think about ingredients in terms of well-being. And you'll hear more about that. These women truly fed my soul. Oh my God, the puns just keep coming, right? (laughs) It's hard to avoid them. But I just, I loved hanging out with them. I love this idea of women leading the change and women turning the food system on its head because, you know, the food stuff is another place where men have traditionally dominated. It's always the guy in the kitchen, isn't it? You know, that celebrity chef is often a man. So here we have these, this whole new guard of young women completely turning all this stuff on its head, asking us, can we feed our well-being through food and our mental health too? How can we reconnect with producers, but also with the land? How can we live more lightly on this planet? There are so many parallels with the fashion industry. We also talk about the different environmental impacts of various foods. So looking at things like water and carbon footprints, 
And we talk about so many ingredients, it's actually hard to keep up. And I have to say, I'm not a great cook myself. And most of these were new to me. So I made a big list, which will pop up in the show notes and you can find it on clairepress.com. And thank you, by the way, to everyone who wished Wardrobe Crisis happy birthday last week. I have to say, I'm feeling awesome for 100. I'm still waiting for my letter from the Queen. Perhaps she's going to leave me a rating or review in Apple Podcasts instead. Have you done that yet? You know, I love it. (laughs) That and sharing about the show on social media. That's about the best birthday present you can give me. As you know, I'm at Mrs Press on Instagram and Twitter. But we've also got a Wardrobe Crisis Facebook page and LinkedIn pages. Okay, you getting hungry? I know I am. Let's get to the show. I'm going to ask you all just to briefly introduce yourselves. Sophie. Hi, I'm Sophie. I'm founder of Gung Ho. Hi, I'm Lauren Levitt and I'm the founder of the Plant Academy and a food entrepreneur. Hi, I'm Sara Kiyopopova and I'm the artist behind She's So Delicious. Hi, I'm Abby Aspen-Glencross. I'm a farmer with Pale Green Dot and Duchess Farms and I'm a chef and activist with the Sustainable Food Story. Fantastic. Now, Sophie... What happened in this very venue last night? We took over the curtain, Shoreditch. It was for the launch of our collection. We got 12 really cool, badass chefs and food wonder babes to design dishes around the issues that we are going to be campaigning around. Then we basically got them to explain it and educate and inspire throughout the whole event. Now, this was on the eve of London Fashion Week, and this is how you celebrate your collection in the kind of fashion calendar and context, but it's absolutely not how everyone else does it. (laughs) It's pretty unconventional. Yes, we don't want to be a normal fashion brand. I don't think that's really the point. In fact, it's kind of the brand is almost a secondary as being fashion. The first and foremost, we want to basically inspire and get people talking about current issues and what's going on in the world. Before we continue, just tell me what you're wearing, because you've got this sweatshirt on, it's embroidered. It's a picture of a pepper, a capsicum. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's a pepper. It's got a pesticide spray through it, which is highlighting the issues about what produce is mostly covered in pesticides and what isn't. We're going to get on to how you communicate that. But Lauren, what are you wearing? So I'm also wrapping the outfit that we I wore last night. And um, this, it's a beautiful jumpsuit. It's all about air miles. The smaller the scale of the produce, the further it has come. So it just shows people just how far things have come to get onto their plate. It's so interesting. I mean, actually, when you first glanced at it, you just think it's a joyous, gorgeous, colourful print of loads of fruit and veg. But actually, it's got a message. That's That's gung-ho. That's (laughs) gung-ho. Sarah, I mentioned before that I had come along to the gung-ho event that happened last season in February. It was during the Chelsea Flower Show, and that's where you and I met. Correct. What did you cook then? And tell us about how the logistics works, because it was in it was in a shop, right? It was in a shop. It was in the basement of a clothes shop in West London. Me and four other chefs arrived, packed with uh, lots of prepped food in, in various different containers, and then assembled it in a little kind of back room. <laughs> in a <print> cupboard. <laughs> two back, two, yeah, in a cupboard, basically. And served it up to uh, 30 guests. What was so great about this, the concept of that evening, for me, as someone who's taking part in quite a lot of subclubs, pop-ups, I cook for various things, what was so great about this one was that Sophie managed to get a number of different chefs together, all making just one dish. Each one had our own personal take on an environmental issue or an issue that is related to your collection. It was really cool because what we did is we wanted to showcase that for, and to do with sustainable fashion, we don't want anything to look sustainable and we want to bring that through towards to food as well. So we wanted to make sure that it was going to be a vegan extravaganza, but it wasn't anything. So it was catered for the normal person to come for a fine dining experience and they it just happened to be vegan. So it was showcasing what we can do with just plant-based cooking. And it was absolutely glorious. So gorgeous visually, but also incredibly deep and complex when it came to the flavour. Lauren, you've got words to say about that. I actually sat opposite you at that one. You did, yeah. So I ended up creating a CBD and hemp ganache. So talking about hemp and yeah, the fact that it has a very well, a lower water footprint than most other plants. And obviously being in the UK, it's something that we can really champion and use in so many delicious ways. 
What is? I didn't even know what it CBD, was. CBD. So it's something. It's a hero ingredient now. Apparently, it is. It is the hero ingredient kind of of the moment. So. CBD and hemp come from the same family of plants, but CBD itself is the non-psychoactive part of cannabis. It's known to really help with nerve problems, mental health issues, anxiety, sleep. Um, So lots of the kind of modern issues of our time it can really help with. I use it a lot in food because we talk about mental health and how we can really help if we draw those links together. So food, nutrition and our minds. So yeah, so CBD is something that really can help. And especially when we use it in dishes, it's just a conversation starter. So like you saying, what is this? How do I use it? And you think, wow, I can make a chocolate cake with CBD, whatever that might be in it. But it opens up a gateway to think, how is that ingredient maybe useful to me or someone I know? So that's something that we really try and do. Talking about feeling good, though, the thing that stuck in my mind and actually haven't been able to shake the memory of her ever since was your friend Mara Sophie singing a song about wonky veg. The thing about Mara is that she writes her own lyrics. So when I knew that I was going to start putting on inspiring and very interactive events, I was like, let's try and get as much inspiration as physically possible. So I wanted to do the visuals. I wanted to do the food. We did like, we got music. And I was like, well, we don't just want to have music. If everything else is being catered for and designed, especially for what we are doing, then the music should too. So I got Mara to start writing um, about some of the stuff. So she actually researched into all of the things we were talking about within the campaign and designed some songs around it and it was they're a zero just beautiful. waste song mm-hmm. strawberries cherries and angels kissing spring we like to sing about all those pretty things what happens when they all go in the bin because they look a bit wonky Before I ask you all to talk about what you cooked last night, Sophie, I just want to remind listeners that we are talking about a fashion label. Gung Ho is a fashion label. Now, you touched on why you do what you do earlier, but just set the context for us. Tell us the story. What is Gung Ho and why do you do what you do? So Gung Ho is a fashion brand that wants to get people talking. So each year we pick a different issue that we want to campaign about that we think is like a hot topic that people should know maybe more than they do. So to start with, we did Precious Insects for a year. Then we went on to Plastic Oceans and now we're doing food. Now you started in 2017, Mm -hmm. three years, you've done three themes. Mm -hmm. Now let's just take a moment to consider how fast the pace of regular fashion is. Who does three themes in three years that in itself is quite radical thank you (laughs) we like to mix things up but I think it's the the most important thing is that if fashion is a first impression of somebody then it shouldn't just be something that makes you look fabulous because that to me is very strange you shouldn't just look good you should also be wearing things that are really connected to what you're passionate about so we design clothing that really has that next level to it so that the next time someone says oh I love what you're wearing you can actually talk about something that really means something personally to you Um, not just say oh thanks I got it on sale which is you know let's face it really boring conversation and we just think we're better than that you know we've gone through a lot we've got things to say and that is not a conversation we should be having all the time but you look at your clothes almost like a canvas you began as an artist. I, know, I read somewhere that you wanted to be a political artist, but then you figured out that actually you could be political through clothing. Yes, it was a weird transition, but my background is my dad's a zero carbon architect. Um, so I, I grew up living a low carbon lifestyle. I shared the same values as him, but I decided that I can't do what he does because I'm not very good at maths and physics but I can draw so I decided to move to Brighton become a political artist because that's what people like do like a cartoonist yeah I mean if you've got something to say and you can draw and you've got you can do that that's what you do but then I found out that I could put the drawings onto fabric through silkscreen printing and that's when things took it to a next level for me because I thought that instead of having something that's in a room where only a limited amount of people would see it as a piece of artwork like on a wall exactly it's quite a closed community like it's very personal art is amazing but it does have its limitations whereas if you're wearing something people often say oh I love what you're wearing and it really is a conversation starter so that's why we change our cause so regularly because we're trying to cover and engage with all of these different issues. Okay, why food this time? Food is an interesting one because food is easy to engage with. So sometimes the world can be very overwhelming. At the moment, the world's kind of going a little bit crazy. And it's important for people to feel like they have a bit of control with it. And everyday decision-making, like food, has a huge impact on 
the world. So to engage with people and sort of start telling them about what is going on and how different impacts within food really can be part of the solution I think that's really inspiring and people connect with it and it's really good for community and people feel engaged and absolutely and it's yummy so it's yeah. like people really enjoy it. it it works so that's why food and the context of sharing over food is something that's time worn and age-old and everyone understands but it does make connections and it does make new friends I mentioned Sarah that you became my new friend last time I came to a gung-ho dinner Yes. The next day we went to the V&A exhibition. It was called Food Bigger Than Your Plate. I think it might be finished now. But I was expecting it to be, I thought, oh, we connected over food, eating mm. it. Let's go to the V&A and look at it and it'll be lovely. It was actually mm. quite horrible, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was quite intense, quite in your face. I mean, interesting. I think, but yeah, they wanted to make confronting. a point. Yeah, for sure. To be honest, we were so busy chatting that uh, I don't think I gave the different sort of bits of the exhibition that's a sort of deep attention that it needed. There was a lot about where our food comes from and especially sort of focusing on the quite gross details mm. of it. Sarah, just tell us what you do with She's So Delicious. Actually, I started off working within health food shops and then really interested in organic food and all these kind of things. I then went back retrained as a performance artist because I felt that I had so much that I wanted to say, I wanted to get it out to the world. As a dancer? Yeah, a dancer, performer, but also a live art, you'd say. So using my body as the site for the art, which was, for me personally, it was a, a great way of just working through a lot of different issues and trying to draw attention to various aspects of being human. And <laughs> in the end of the day, I just felt like I, start, I got to the point where I realised that this is becoming too much for me to constantly be the site of my work. So I then kind of almost by chance started to upload pictures of the food that I was making for myself. But almost by chance, your pictures are glorious. Have you seen the first ones? Have you seen the first ones? Did they used to suck? <laughs> no, no. They, I, I guess they were, I was always very interested in how I was presenting the food and have eaten mostly plant-based food for my whole adult life. So food was always very important but I then realized that through food I had a vessel of expressing my values and and all these various issues that I wanted to draw attention to but it wasn't to do with me anymore it was to do with the food that I created. So would you call yourself a food blogger? That is one way of saying it. But you hate it. Uh, yeah, but, I, but <laughs> like, I don't actually. That is one way, and no. That is <laughs> no, because I don't really have a blog as such. You know, I'm not a blogger who well, you're has. You're an author. I'm an author, twice a published author, and I would say that my Instagram account is where I blog, so to speak. Yeah. So where I share a lot of like I constantly put out ideas for recipes. I talk about my own journey into reducing my my use of plastic, reducing various, you know, just trying to have a low, more low impact yeah. lifestyle. Okay, Abby. Yes. I'd love for you to share a little bit about your story and how you became a farmer and can I call you a chef? Yeah. I never know what language words people like. I always say cook, but then I always find that all guys call themselves chefs and then girls seem to be more like, "Um, oh, I'm a cook. And so it's like, oh, yeah, no, I suppose I'm a chef now. But you began in a very different way. Yeah, yeah. So I began life as a chemical engineer, trained as a chemical engineer, and then I got really disenchanted because I worked in oil and gas and saw a lot of pictures of refining and stuff like that and never actually visited them and thought that disconnect was so weird. So ended up as a lab meat scientist doing a, a PhD at King's College, between King's College and Maastricht. And I travel around the world being like a, I think more of like a poster girl for it because I really believed in it. I thought that... Let me just stop you there. What is that? So lab-grown meat. Uh, so we used to use animal stem cells and my job was to create... Not just muscle fibres, but like a 3D vascularised tissue, with fancy words. Um, so essentially steak was my PhD, was based on. And when was this? Because now it's such a buzz thing, isn't it? Uh, it has been for so long. Um, so my supervisor, him and his team made the burger in 2013 that was televised and eaten on TV. And I What's think his name? Uh, Mark Post. He's he's absolutely amazing chap and the lab is incredible. But I just learned a lot. And I learned of the disconnect between scientists everywhere and agriculture. And no one really thought about where the source materials to feed those cells were coming from. So I started to visit farmers and work with them and say, oh, look, we can buy the crop from you to feed these cells. And then realised how weird that was. <laughs> uh, and so got really lost and just started working on farms and a bit, bit big farms, not like small scale 
agriculture. I'm talking 1,000 acres. And when you say started working on them, what were you doing? We ran a project called Our Field. So had about 40 people co-invest in a field and help decide how a crop was grown at a place called Western Park Farm in, in Hertfordshire. The farmers there, John Cherry and his family, incredible people. But I realised more and more how going organic is really difficult. You know, everyone says we should eat organic food and and that in itself is is quite a bold statement to make when you've never been a farmer. Organic is hard and there's no help for it in the government or anything. So, yeah, I realised that quite quickly and then left my PhD to retrain as a farmer. <laughs> what do you do now then? What do you grow? <laughs> what do you farm? And where do you do it? So a place called Dutchess Farms, really great farm. I run the heritage grains part. So we grow heritage grains and sell to bakeries around London and they grow rapeseed oil. So heritage grains are helping convert the farm to organic and rapeseed is not organic, but lower input than most rapeseed. And I also head up the market garden for a company called Pearl Green Dot. So we grow a very vast range of veg, some stuff you will never have seen before, which hopefully I showed people last night. And I'm also a chef and activist with the Sustainable Food Story with my best friend and partner in crime, Sive Moore. And we cook sort of all over the world. I hate to say environmentalism, I'm all over the world, mainly in the UK. And we are telling the story of ecology through food. I'm going to come back to you each and ask you to briefly explain what you cooked, but I just want to bounce this along to Lauren and ask you to share a little bit about your background and what was the name of your crazy business? Asparagasm. So (laughs) it's amazing. One of the reasons Sophie and I connected and started doing these events together, I guess, is we have a slightly similar journey in that I was also studying fashion and I went through all sorts of mental health issues. And the thing that had always been kind of my inspiration and passion was food. So when I was finishing my degree, I thought, how can I create a kind of, how can I engage people with a lifestyle that feeds their minds? So I kind of wrote a trend analysis book to inspire people to eat for their mental health. What even is a trend analysis book? um, So it was kind of drawings and recipes and like a whole kind of blueprint for a lifestyle that would support your mental health so it was talking about cafe culture and how like coming together over food can be really kind of nurturing not just the ingredients but But also coming back to the ingredients yeah exactly so coming back to the ingredients and coming together to cook or to just do something good for yourself to take that moment that can do you some good so yeah the book kind of was a bit of a blueprint and that actually led me to retrain as a chef. So I finished that, I started up a business and got about six or seven different jobs thinking, who am I and what do I want to be in this world? And one of the things was actually working with an amazing woman, Kate Lewis, who founded Asparagasm. Um, So that was one of the first vegan pop-ups in London, doing kind of very wild and wonderful aspirational vegan fine dining events. So yeah, Kate had that in London. I was working at her pub in the Cotswolds and... Amongst doing other things, I used to watch these events and think, wow, this is very, very cool. And how can I get involved? So she was looking for a permanent site. I was training as a chef. We spent about a year trying to open a place. And within weeks, our executive chef left and I just had to be the chef overnight. I was like, "Okay, this is what we're going to do. So, yeah, so I kind of led up that business. We started to do festivals, events and all sorts of different things and then later down the line I continued to train all over the world and then started to teach chefs how to make plant-based food and how to make their kind of food vision more sustainable and more kind of nourishing to who they're cooking for so always natural ingredients but elevated. I feel sitting here looking at the four of you squidged together on the screen sofa that we're on the brink of a lovely food revolution that is led by women am I right? Yes! (laughs) Yeah. And this is the thing with last night, isn't it? The way that we've all met and come together. I think so many people would say, like, wow, like 10, 12 chefs coming together for these events. Mm. Amazing. Like, who are they? Why is that happening? But there is such a movement. I'd love you to share what you cooked last night. Um, Abby. So mine was based around pesticides. Uh, She's pesticides and it was called One Woman's Waste is Another Woman's. And then that's it. Um, (laughs) And it was actually, so this time of year, courgettes are coming to a close. And so we grow a lot on the farm and usually just compost all of your courgette plants. And instead you can make a penne out of the stems. So you take the stems and you strip them all and then you blanch them in water for like salty water for about uh, four minutes or something. And then the whole rest of the dish was based on the farm so it was thai basil oil hyssop and a blackberry shrub everything kind of foraged from the farm and a pastry made from heritage grains and um rapeseed oil 
Fantastic. Sarah, what did you cook? It was yummy. Was that, that was my favourite dish. Oh, <laughs> so my dish was called 1,000 litres of water. So I was working with the water footprint issue. So um, I started looking into how much water is actually used to produce common foods and was absolutely shocked and surprised by what I found out. Uh, like Which is what? For example, uh, we all think, oh, your almonds, beef... Or those are like huge uh, water guzzlers. They are, but coffee, chocolate, olive oil is right up there even more. Like olive oil and chocolate, coffee as well. It actually requires more water than, than beef. Not that that's going to make me start eating beef again. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, to me, I wanted to somehow visualize this for people. So I, I, I made a plate where I included 10 common foods. They were all in the sort of um, uh, flavor profile of Japanese food, Asian Japanese. But I, I spent a, a little bit of time calculating for uh, like, if you had 100 liters of water, how much rice would you get? Wow. How much green beans would you get? How much sesame oil would you get? And then you basically are presented Amazing. with quite an interesting plate. So my plate was quite, everything was kind of separated into little groups and I was encouraging people to mix things up as they wanted. But I, I think it's really powerful to show something like that visually to people and they realize, oh my God, for the same amount of water, I could either have one drop of oil or a whole tomato. Mm. Lauren, what did you make? So I covered dessert. So we did a bit of a dessert flight at the end. Um, I did a dish called The Rebellion, a silent protest. So yeah, it was windfall plums, cultured oats, some fennel. And yeah, it was all about kind of what we try. And so the Plant Academy is a plant-based cookery school in East London. So me and my team created this dish to be something that... Something that we really try and teach is our students how to connect with local suppliers and how to think more sustainably. Like, mm. like exactly like Sarah was saying, we can use these ingredients that come from further afield, but it's all about understanding how much. Mm. So if we're going to use something like cashew nuts, which can be really kind of heavy in plant-based or vegan food, it's like using much, much less and like using them for what they really need to be for and then how to make that bioavailable and better for us. So if we're using a cashew nut, we'd normally ferment them just so they're more easy on our digestion, but then they also go a bit further. So like all so of those things. Yeah. And then so after that, I did a Feed Your Mind candy, which is my little project inspiring better mental health through food. So we did a CBD and hemp ganache. So a take on what I've you had. had. It. You had, had it. I felt so good. Yeah, it, it was, was great. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, we use um, London CBD, which is the, a great distributor of CBD and the Wellbeing Company Chocolate, which is another chocolate brand championing mental health but also thinking really sustainably and then to finish we did food for thought which was a little british bean truffle using carob instead of cacao which is from spain rather than being from further afield and then lion's mane which is a medicinal mushroom which is regenerative to your brain and your gut so really thinking about the future of food for ourselves and how we can kind of nourish ourselves more but also think about the soil where we're getting things from fascinating you speak sarah no, I'm, I'm you just... You were like, oh, you got to say something. I was just saying, I know, I was just thinking selfishly, I wished I'd taken that because I didn't get to eat that ball. I didn't either. And go I was just thinking, I've, I was just thinking... I'll be to call the balls, but I've got more in my fridge. So we I can was go just to thinking how I was dying, I would die to have one now because I haven't oh. had breakfast, I haven't had anything. I've got some plums in my bag. Uh, <laughs> I've never had a plum. I was going to say, because you used Hobby Dobbs beans. Yeah, and, that's, and If you're ever going to champion a brand... Homo yeah. Dobbs, oh my god, they're yeah, so they lovely. Really they are. provide like beans and pulses and grains and stuff, but their model is amazing how they treat their farmers and help them grow and buy back from them. Yeah, really yeah. great guys. And, okay, also, and also growing beans and, and pulses that are not native to here. So they just harvested their first harvest of chickpeas. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, all, all of this. Anything, Lentils. Quinoa. Yeah. <laughs> British quinoa. Anyway, name name veg you love. Hang on, stop the presses. Hang on a minute. All right. I just knew that I was going to ask this, and now's the moment. Viva Weisspap, if you're listening to this. My mate Viva and I used to play a game called If You're a Vegetable, What Vegetable Would You Be? Ooh. We would play it about other people too. And she thought that I was a long, skinny courgette. I'm less skinny now. <laughs> if you're a vegetable, what vegetable would you be? Rapidly, Sophie. I think I'd be a bean. Oh, <laughs> I full, think full of. I think I'd bean. I think I'd be like a broad bean. <laughs> Maybe a broad, Such bean. A good broad bean. 
I'd be a broccoli. So I love broccoli and they're vibrant and they can be so many different types. Probably an Aztec broccoli because that's the one that Abby did and it's great. Oh, um, it's, a, it's a lemon, maybe. <laughs> no, I'm not, it's not, it's a fruit, but a lemon, zingy, juicy, like nice colour. That's so much cooler than a broad bean. <laughs> I love a broad bean. Abby, you can't get out of it. What uh, would you be? I'd be curie squash because I like to lie on the floor for a long time. They take a really long time to ripen. And they're <laughs> sweet and gooey. Um, no, I'm, I'm, glad I asked, I'm glad I asked you a serious question, though. Sophie, I asked the chefs what they cooked. Now I want to ask you why food for thoughts. And perhaps you might just give us a really quick overview of those three areas that you zeroed in on in this particular collection and that the chefs all responded to. So air miles, water footprint and pesticides. So um, yes, we choose three different things to campaign around per season. More than that is too much. And also you want to really get your teeth into an issue and really learn about it and really champion that properly. So we want to do each one justice. The research that I've done on these three issues It's quite overwhelming when you first get into it, but it's it's important to try and sort of condense it all down so that it's easy to understand because the idea of the brand is to very much start that conversation and you can't have something that's difficult to explain. So I've tried to make it quite easy. Well, if you want visually. to read the latest IPCC report all about land use and understand the complexity around what we're really doing in terms of the climate impacts of our food system, you can do that. But what you do is something very different. You create conversation starters. Tell us about the mini magazine element. Yes. So the three things that we do, each one comes with a mini zine that it briefly explains the issue that you're wearing, why it's important, what you can do to help. With every purchase, we donate 10% of our profits back to a charity that works with the issue that you are wearing anyway. So even if you just buy it because you like it, it's great. We do the good stuff and it's all sustainably made in London and out of good fabrics, everything like that. We try and do that as it should be standard. We have a following at the moment of people that really know what they're doing and they really they really care. They really want to make change. But we, we don't want to preach to the converted. Mm. We want to get people involved in this movement that don't know about it yet. So it's all about making it simple to understand. So these mini-zines are a really big thing. And if you if you just buy it, you see it on a rail, you maybe read the mini-zine, you buy it because you like it, but then you find out that little bit extra, it starts to become very personal. So That pineapple is tiny because... Yes, so the Air Mars one is visual. It's all about size. So the smaller the object, the further away it has come. That's the end of that. We went and did the research. That's what that one is. The pesticide one, the amount of spray that goes through the produce is directly related back to the government reports. So you can tell which ones, the, the more spray through the produce, the more samples came back testing with pesticides. So you can see which ones visually are better if you're not buying organic and which ones mm. are worse. And then the water footprint one was all about size again. So the bigger the object, the more water it takes to make that. You've got a sweatshirt with a cow on the front and the, the name of it is Water Cow. <laughs> I think everyone knows about the carbon footprint of beef. It's something that's been discussed widely. Um, I think on your website you say something like the water footprint is like this sort of quiet sibling of the carbon footprint. Like it's something people know less about, right? Yeah, yeah. So for example, yeah, the water one is easy to break down if you have an example because I don't think people really understand the concept just yet, which is why we wanted to champion it. <laughs> so it's good to give it more of a shout out. So for example, to take into account like on the average lifespan of a cow, so it would take into account maybe it's at three years and then it would take into account all of the water that cow has drunk throughout its lifetime or the water used to produce the grains and all of its food that it eats throughout its lifetime. Then it's slaughtering process mm -hmm. and then you divvy that up between the average amount of kilograms that that cow would produce and you come to a figure. And that figure is really shocking. So for one kilogram of beef, which is like a large steak, would be 15,400 liters <gasps> of water. Really? That's what it takes. But I mean- So we always talk about 2,700 liters of water up to that amount to make one cotton t-shirt. Uh-huh. But you're talking about one steak, eat it, gone. So 92% of the water that we use is in food. And people don't, don't know. know that. Abby, you've worked in this field. Yeah, I did a lot of steak research, spent a lot of time dissecting bits of cow and stuff like that. But it's really difficult because, so there's two sides. There's the, um, we should eat less and better 
Um, some say we don't shouldn't eat less, which I don't agree with. We do need to, eat, on the whole, eat less. Um, yeah, because meat. we're gorging. We're yeah. eating more than ever. I mean, people are like seven days a week a steak. Exactly, and three times a day sometimes. And so, they, not steak, but meat. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. But there's different, complete different types. So a cow shouldn't eat grain. If you're going to eat a cow, you should know your farmer where possible because you can do 100% grass managed beef, but you should be eating so small amount. Meat is such a concentrated, like you're saying with water, concentrated protein and nutrient source. And so I don't eat much, but as a farmer, I have a really, really heavy manual job. So I do eat some animal products. And steak is not the worst. When you look at the state of pigs and chickens in the UK, you know, there is an element of humanity to this as well. Mm. It's like not just stats. So it's like you have to look at both sides, but you can have a lower water and carbon footprint for, for cows. Just quickly on veganism, obviously it's a trending in inverted commas topic and there's much more interest in it. Who's vegan and why and should we be? I would call myself a soft approach vegan, perhaps. So most of the food that I eat is just plants. But then I have realised for for my own kind of just personal health, I need to have small amounts of animal products, mostly eggs, other kind of sort of low impact animal products. Not much. So a bit of balance. balance. Uh, I'm not, but I will only buy offal. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't ready for that answer. Yeah, when because you realize, you you're a war on waste person. Yeah, when you realise how much waste is, I find animal products help me with my work, manual labour, mm. but I will only yeah buy things that are, people don't really want to buy, so like blood and back fat and that sort of thing. Dedication <laughs> there, yeah. and uh, presumably, uh, Lauren, you're not buying any of the blood and back fat. <laughs> I'm not. But why should people but, be, or not should, but why do you personally believe in being vegan? Well, so yeah, I am. I am vegan, and... I believe in being vegan because you celebrate the whole plant, you enjoy like local seasonal ingredients. I don't believe that vegan junk food is necessarily vegan. So I think there's lots of things that go on in the system that I still wouldn't actually class as vegan. Mm. But I think if you're, it's just living that like, I think, connected, low waste lifestyle. I, researching this interview, started looking into meat production But I watched this CNN report, and I'll share a link to it, which was about the Texan beef industry. And honestly, I never eat steak in my life again. I mean, seeing the cattle crammed into the feedlots, it's revolting. We don't know. We don't know. We think a cow lives in the grass. And I did. I grew up in Cornwall, and I used to buy food in Asda. You know, it just the disconnect is there. And I suppose it's so difficult. Farming has taught me so much. You know, you see how animals are used to manage land. We couldn't work without animal products on our land. Some people are vegan farmers, but then you have to artificially create something. You know, animals are made to be there. Manure tilling, so ploughing, animals do that. Have you seen the film 2040? Mind will be blown. It's the best, I can honestly say, it's the best film I've ever seen. My friend's husband made this film. It's about the future that might be possible for his daughter in 2040, she's currently four, and he imagines what we could do with stuff we already have now, so not just making it up, mm-hmm. if we progressed on some of this beautiful thinking around renewables or regenerative farming processes, etc. but it's full of hope. But there's stuff in there about that, like how if you had small amounts of cattle and they were on the land, then they would be tilling the soil. And there are people doing it. I've worked on farms eating mixed grain. Mixed. Yeah, mixed. And we just shouldn't be feeding grains to animals. That was the main thing. The reason I became a grain farmer is because 70% of the worldwide grain is fed to animals when it could be fed to people. Mm. And a lot of it is to do with... 70%? Yeah, 70%. It's, it's insane. And I cycled through Hertfordshire before I did all this. And everything was wheat. And I remember asking one farmer, what do you do all this? And he was like, oh, it just goes for animal feed. And you get paid nothing for it, but you're caught in a loop as a farmer. And average age is quite high. So you get caught in this loop of like knowing you'll be able to sell it. So you grow it, but actually then you spray it because you might lose your crop. So actually you're not making any money and you're hoping the price will rise. It's crazy. What does everyone else think is one of the things that people don't know about the food system? I mean, I think the waste issue is something people don't have a grasp on when you hear that a third of all food produced is wasted you think that can't be right people are starving Mm. but it is right in america it's close to 40 percent i would say distribution distribution is really really difficult for a farmer and yeah middlemen quite often you go to middlemen and then you go to supermarkets and stuff and it's been brought to light a lot in the news but veg aren't straight 
veg aren't unblemished. You know, and the sooner we get over that. And it is becoming more of a thing, but it's... The uniformity, people want yeah, a certain colour or shape or size. The majority of our nutrients come from five main crops. And again, you can see it when you travel the world and you see them being grown. And the veg, like, who knows what another type of broccoli look like? There's purple, there's orange, there's green, there's... And it needs this amazing company called The Real Seed Company who are championing these interesting varieties because the diversity in colour is diversity in nutrients. Once you start paying attention to that on your plate and then think for every meal that you're going to include those five colours, you realise that you are. it's very, very easy to have a variety of food on your plates and a variety of macronutrients, micronutrients, all of those things. And also, like naturally, a variety in flavours. Mm. And it's, it's just fun and you start thinking about it and you realise, oh, something's missing here. I'll just mm. add some green beans or yeah. a tomato and... It's about understanding where things come from and people now are, you know, you're making your own almond milk or you're getting quite excited, but it's like, should we be using almonds? Like, asking these questions, I think, is so important. It's so another layer, though, isn't it? It's, it's deeper. Another, it's a deeper layer and, yeah, people don't see the whole picture sometimes and I think it's so important to strip it back and really understand the provenance of things and why and how we're using them. Mm-hmm. But we did, last week, we actually just finished this amazing, like, five-day course and... The students that came, we went to a place called Omved Gardens um, with a chef called Arthur Potts Dawson. He um, works with the UN on kind of like food policy and the, you know, what grains companies could be using that are more sustainable or so many things. Anyway, but we stripped it back and we were talking about food resilience. And it was like, how can chefs have an impact through what they cook? What foods are we eating? You do actually have to think about the whole picture and I think that's something that people want to make a pretty plate but you can't you can't do that without the meaning that is just the perfect thing to end on talking about fashion and bringing this back to fashion Sophie isn't it it strikes me that we're also extremely disconnected from our the way our clothes are made and where they come from and that there are parallels it's really interesting because the same problems that we're having in fashion they're in everything like everything's connected which is why I think gung-ho has a place with this movement because I think that it's all intertwined so deeply like each issue and cause is so interlinked anyway it's kind of crazy but I know that you've started doing the greenwashing calling out (laughs) I got so sick of it I just got so sick of everyone just trying to market stuff without actually telling the truth well this is the thing so it's it happens a lot with food as well and I think that's something that I think is I've learned is quite surprising so It's the same thing if someone says that it's, like, made in the UK. That's, like, the finished product. So I recently found out that a lot of the time, for example, British fish or, like, things that have just been caught, like, off our coast, it's cheaper for them to take it to China to gut it and then bring it back here. Oh, my God, it's just like fashion. Because it's cheaper, so mm-hmm. then it makes more financial sense, even though that is like the least logical thing in the world for me. That's like, that's madness. But that's what's happening. And mm-hmm. I think that it's just about starting to be really transparent and getting people to really ask the questions. Like, I think the more people do genuinely call people out, this is the great thing about social media. I wanted to finish by asking you all to future gaze. What would you dream for a sustainable food future? Paint me a picture, Lauren. And let's, let's make it fact-based fantasy. So something we could actually achieve. Something we can achieve. Well, it's finding a way. I mean, something we, especially with having restaurants, we work with a lot is like the connection with farmers. So even I find in London right now, there's, there are amazing people doing great things. But it just takes a while to find them and actually to not have that middle person. So I think in the future, as we're educating people to you know, cook more for themselves, understand more about the produce, where they're getting from, going to a farmer's market. But that more, like, how can we really get people to connect with farmers? I know there's so many people doing great things to build apps, to build, like, kind of technology that can get people to talk directly. So I think an attainable food future would be one that hopefully, like, supermarkets are much less there's much more connection and that we actually get creative with that connection, understand that there's that variety, there's these crazy squash out there that we can make pasta with. I mean, it's great and getting people to see those things in a, an exciting way that doesn't seem inaccessible. So I think, yeah, what hopefully we're on the path, I think all of us to doing is like helping people to see how delicious and taste how delicious that can be. Yeah. Perfect. I think that that's, that's bang on. I think that 
with anything with major change, I think that it comes down to a lot of legislation mm. and making it a rule because as much as it's great and you'll have this little movement of people that really want to do it, if we're going to do it on the bigger scale, I think people don't have a, they just need to be forced to do it. That's the way that people are going to really start to think about it if they have to. So I think that if we had supermarkets that really supported, it was part of their, you know, they got rewarded and benefits from buying UK produce and really looking at their air miles and maybe air miles being a bit of a quota, maybe mm. even, you know, things looking at things like that, like, yes, of course you can have like an avocado, but if that's coming from across the world, you only get one a week. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Like you that's can't have thing, four it? a day. Yeah. Mm. There's a place called the People's Supermarket where they, they are doing this, but more we need so much more of those and for them to be everywhere yeah i completely echo that and even before you said anything i I was going a bit more drastic i just thought we just need a law that says we cannot import anything that's come further than this x amount or just to make more rules around Mm. what is allowable what about waste as well because i know that's one of your passions completely so so similar there like like the the amount of plastic packaging that you see when as soon as you walk into a supermarket these days is just absolutely astounding and even if you are have the best intentions in the world and you do want to use less plastic it's it's nearly impossible if you shop in normal supermarkets so that as well needs to change but that would also mean like changing the whole sort of distribution system because everything now is like built up around the fact that everything comes in these like little convenient capsules it's much easier to store it's much easier to transport so that kind of whole system needs to be completely changed so that people are going back like even if you just go back 30 years in times 40 years in times produce was uh, just out there and you just have to pick it in a bag or you know more more things came in in paper packets or glass packets metal now it's all in plastic seasonal and a bento box in a bento box and also and also convenience food Oh my God, it's like my pet hate. Like all of these food that come, is like like some drink that comes, like just a few hundred milliliters, comes in this like elaborate plastic bottle with this like big top that you screw off and then there's like, and then no. you just throw that thing away. That you, you could potentially use that for years for something, but you know, that just needs, that just needs to go. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay, Abby, don't be sorry. We need to do it. Um, people and legislation, they're entwined, but two different things. So for people, ours is making food and farming as sexy and desirable as lab-grown meat and biotech and stuff like that. But on the legislation side, it's supporting organic or biodynamic food production more so. Uh, hopefully in the new change of legislation, there will be a support for food production, not just you know, looking after land, but also food for people. But also that's linked in, the buying kind of crap food is linked in with, you know, raising minimum wage. People buy convenience food because you work all the time, you don't earn enough money. So that's kind of all linked in together. And then for us, it's just, yeah, trying to learn more about where things have come from, but being called out on what is sustainable and ethical. And we need to all be working together as a sort of left movement instead of fighting amongst ourselves which happens in a lot of closed door round table meetings so yeah we actually need to join forces and perhaps just a word on what listeners can do because obviously regulation is important and obviously changing the whole system is something we do need to do in fashion as well but what's your takeaway for listeners who just want to do something tomorrow that they can do at home call to actions is farmers markets i know everyone says it they're actually not more expensive you know because you'll get a lot of the wonky things and weird things but yeah go really go to and it's fun it's really nice go with my boyfriend (laughs) if you don't have a farmer's market nearby because a lot of people don't then just think of the produce that you or the the foodstuffs that you're buying have they been flown from across the world it is worth looking into things like water footprint carbon footprint etc just to give you a little bit of a uh, like perspective on what types of food you should just have less of it's just have a little bit less of them and have more of the other stuff. Have more potatoes, have more oats, yeah. have more I think that the one thing that's, that made a big difference for me is when I first started looking into this, I signed up to Oddbox, which is like mm-hmm. a, I get a weekly delivery from just outside of London um, farms. It's all the stuff that would have gone to waste. It means that I have to be really creative with what I do. And it means that I'm cooking with ingredients I would never buy 
buy normally which means that I'm kind of getting to know different produce like I've been cooking with turnips I would never go into a supermarket and be like oh I'll get me some turnips <laughs> but like I'm starting to really like appreciate different flavors it's and creativity from restraint isn't it it's it's yeah. also habit I think people get like they have their like set things because you know you're right people don't have very much time so they go right I know my set thing you know I'm gonna have my pesto pasta or whatever you know that it's their go-to but if you start to really set some time aside it's good for the soul and it's good for the world so it's good Mm. yeah but signing up to a box like that really makes a big difference and if there isn't a box like that and you're looking for an entrepreneurial opportunity perhaps you might like to start one lauren the final word rests with you um so yeah i think all of those things crucial it's just maybe challenging yourself doing something that you wouldn't normally do think of an ingredient in a different way but thinking about what does come from here and being like oh I wouldn't normally pick up that turnip but can I and then just connecting there's so many inspiring people out there doing great things like going to a class there's community cookery classes they do great things and adding more vegetables to your plate making your pesto pasta but adding a handful of locally grown kale if you can get it or just some greens you must like you know just think about thinking creatively with vegetables adding them to your food and making little challenges because I think when you start with good ingredients you can't go that wrong Mm -hmm. so don't feel scared like let yourself be creative don't feel like it might go in a different way and just kind of embrace the vegetables (laughs) that's the best note to end on (laughs) thank you so much it's getting hard my parents feel that Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you